an emergency, five one zero. My wife's been shot. I've been shot. On the evening of October 23, 1989, Charles Chuck Stewart and his wife Carol were driving in the Ruxbury neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts, when according to Charles, a black man with a gun robbed him and his wife, shooting them both. Okay, has your wife been shot as well? Yes. Charles said that he and his wife were ambushed by a black man with a raspy voice. He made the call from his car phone as they were leaving a pregnancy class because they were expecting their first child. My wife is breathing. Chuck, I'm going to get assistance to you, buddy. Open the door. Carol would later die to her injuries around 3 a.m., a few hours after the shooting. Welcome to Strange Talk, episode 15. Charles Chuck Stewart, the man who fooled the world. Welcome to Strange Talk. Carol lied motionless in the passenger seat of Charles's Toyota Cressida. Charles had just phoned 911, saying he and his wife, Carol, were robbed and shot by a black man after attending childbirthing classes at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Carol was shot in the head and Charles was shot in the abdomen. Paramedics had a hard time locating them, as GPS tracking wasn't readily available just yet. Eventually, paramedics were able to locate them by way of police and EMTs listening to Charles' 911 call and hearing their sirens on the open microphone of his car. Upon arrival, EMTs could see Charles propping himself up against his back headrest in the driver's seat, while Carol was slumped over in the passenger seat. EMTs pulled them both from the vehicle. As Charles was being placed in the ambulance, he asked how his wife Carol was doing and told police what had transpired. Carol would die a few hours later. As for their unborn son, which they had named Christopher, according to Carol and Charles's wishes, he was delivered by C-section and died 17 days later of respiratory failure. Charles underwent emergency surgery to repair the damage caused by the bullet that traversed his abdomen and into his chest. Charles stayed in the hospital, recovering for several weeks, and was unable to attend his wife and unborn son's funeral. He did, however, write a letter that was read aloud at the funeral by a close friend. The letter read, Now you sleep away from me. I will never again know the feeling of your hand in mine, but I will always feel you. I miss you, and I love you. In our souls, we must forgive this sinner because God would too. Following the aftermath, police were on a witch hunt. They searched nearby neighborhoods that were predominantly African-American and questioned more than 700 black men. It caused a huge outcry of racism amongst the African-American community. Police would stop and frisk any and all black men in hopes of finding the alleged shooter. It divided Boston and the local news media conducted interviews with locals asking what they thought of the event. Many were quick to point out the hypocrisy of the Boston police, saying that if it were a black woman murdered, 
there would not be this much effort in trying to find the killer. Others felt compassion for Charles and what he's had to endure. Boston in 1989 had greatly mended from the racial tensions of the 1970s, but it would seem the wounds of racism and racial discrimination were opened up once again by the murder of Carol DiMotti Stewart and her unborn son. Police managed to find a suspect that fit Charles's description. His name was Willie Bennett, and he was a 39-year-old black male who was held in jail for unrelated charges and was the main suspect in the case. On December 3rd, Charles was asked to point out the shooter in a police lineup and picked out Willie Bennett and said he was the person responsible for his wife's death. Willie Bennett was then charged and sat in jail awaiting his trial. Charles was seemingly enjoying his life despite what he's been through. After leaving the hospital and the months that followed, he was issued a check for $100,000 for a life insurance policy on his wife and immediately cashed it. Charles also put down $16,000 in cash for a brand new Nissan Maxima. Now I know people grieve in different ways, but I for one feel that Charles' behavior seems a bit odd. In the beginning of January 1990, Charles' brother, Matthew Stewart, was sitting in his home watching TV when a breaking news segment interrupted his program. The news anchor said that they have word that a suspect has been found in the murder of Carol Stewart, and his name is Willie Bennett, and he's going to be charged with the murder. Matthew begins to feel heavy, and soon a dark secret he's been holding in would give way. Hey strangers, the holidays are right around the corner, so why not give Killer Trace a shot? If you've been on the fence about giving Killer Trace a try, then now is a time that's never better than to give Killer Trace a shot. Killer Trace is a monthly subscription-based box where they'll send you a cold case every month that have unique cases which you can try to solve by yourself or with the friends. But what's even better, and probably a good idea, especially when you're spending time with the family during Christmas, is they just released the True Detectives Kit. It comes with amazing amount of just cold case solving fun. So why don't you visit killertrace.com forward slash strange talk podcast 2088. That's killertrace.com forward slash strange talk podcast 2088. And use my code strange talk podcast 2088 <laughs> to save 20% off your first box. Now back to the show. Matthew Stewart, sitting in the Boston police station, in the interrogation room. Detectives ask why he's there. Matthew says to the detectives that he has information on his brother, Charles, and that if he could be granted some type of immunity for his information. Matthew then tells the detectives that Willie Bennett is innocent and that he cannot stand by and see an innocent man being charged for what he and his brother Charles have done. Matthew goes on to admit that on the night of October 23rd, the night of Carol's death, he and his brother Charles had conducted a plan. Matthew said that he drove out that night to meet his brother Charles, just after he shot Carol in the head, and Matthew took the gun and a bag of valuables, including their wedding rings, and threw them off the Pines River Bridge 
in Revere, a city in Suffolk County, Massachusetts. Detectives arrest Matthew. Before Matthew was placed in his cell, he made a call to Charles and said, I'm sorry. I told them everything. I should have never done this and I've regretted it. And not a single night has gone by that I don't think about Carol. Charles hangs up and immediately calls to meet with his lawyer. After meeting with his lawyer, Charles gets into his car and drives. During this time, the police are searching for Charles's whereabouts. Just a few hours after Matthew's confession, Boston police stumble upon Charles's Nissan Maxima abandoned on the Tobin Bridge in Chelsea. A note was found in his car that read, I am beaten by these new accusations, and I am sapped of my strength. Charles's body was found in the Mystic River the next day. An investigation was conducted, and it was later found that Charles had previously expressed a desire to kill his wife. Charles's motive was money. It almost always is. Charles was a general manager at a fur shop on Newberry Street in Boston, and was used to a lavish lifestyle which his wife Carol provided because she was a tax attorney for Connors Publishing Company in West Newton, a suburb of Boston. Charles's plan worked in most parts due to the area he chose to drive home through. Mission Hill is a racially mixed section of the city of Boston, with a high rate of drug users and crime. The racial bias the Boston City Police displayed was also a huge factor in play. For example, the day Charles picked Willie Bennett out of the police lineup, he was the only African American in the lineup among white men who were actually officers posing as criminals. Even worse was the reason the Boston police even had Willie as a suspect was simply by hearsay. As Willie's nephew happened to brag to friends that his uncle Willie was the man who did it. That was all the police needed to bring Willie in. Another was Willie's history with the law. Willie later said in an interview that was conducted 28 years after the whole ordeal and said, Whenever I still hear that man's name, I still shake. He's a heartless monster. I was an easy target because of the color of my skin. I don't claim to be an angel, as I was a wild one before, but I never hurt anybody. Willie also said that he was never compensated for what he was put through. Another reason was that Charles was not looking forward to being a father. He could not stand the fact that someone other than he would be getting in the way of his needs. Also, some friends of the stewards recalled Carol speaking about an issue with Charles spending a lot of money on life insurance, and that Carol couldn't understand why he would spend so much money on life insurance. Yet these friends would wait after everything to bring this information to light. As for Matthew, he was able to strike a deal for his confession, and he only spent five years in prison and was released in 1997. Matthew did not live a happy life, though, as he was alienated by his family. Matthew became a heavy drug user, and in 2011, he was discovered dead in a homeless shelter from an overdose. 
the African-American community were outraged when it was discovered that Charles was the murderer. Protests were held against the Boston police, with many wanting the police commissioner to resign. Boycotts by African-Americans of both the Boston Globe and Boston Herald were ongoing. They blamed them for reinforcing the danger of black neighborhoods to a largely white public. Charles Chuck Stewart and the city of Boston were in the minds of a large number of Americans. And in 1989, Charles fooled the world. So that was the story, or not the story, but the case of Charles Chuck Stewart, who murdered his wife, although it was, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he did. I mean, what reason would he have to kill himself unless he really was telling the truth? But I highly doubt that, given the amount of evidence that was found against him after his uh, death, after he committed suicide like a fucking bitch, because he couldn't take what he did. Um... So unless I wasn't really clear in that uh, segment of where I said, you know, his wife was a tax attorney and she was paid very well. So she was really responsible for the lifestyle that they led before, you know, she had gotten pregnant. But I guess because she gotten pregnant, he was too used to that. And maybe he suffered from obviously he was a sociopath for him to do this because he did not love her for her. He loved her for the money and everything. I did happen to read, however, though, from doing the research that he was or he may have been having an affair sort of along the case that's actually been uh, recently. Uh, what is his name? Chris Watts, I believe his name is, or Robert Watts. I don't know. Um, I'm going to look that up right now. But it's sort of along the, li- uh, along the lines of that. And um, yeah, it was Chris Watts, um, how he was found, you know, to have murdered his family and because he was having an affair and uh, a lot of people uh, i mean the article that i read said that a lot of people came forward and said that he may have been having an affair with a woman that had came into his shop one day and he was uh providing her because he was a fur salesman and so that was a thing uh but i couldn't really i don't i didn't want to put it in there just in case I'm giving it to you right now because it's more on the looser side where I'm just giving my disposition and everything. But uh, I don't really, I didn't want to put it in the actual story because, in the episode, because I felt like if I can't find, if it's factual, I won't put it in there, you know. (laughs) So the next story, there's actually going to be another story, but it's going to be a more looser feel one because I want you guys, the listeners, to tell me what you like more. Do you like the flashy story side? Because I did the flashy story side with the music and everything because I felt I haven't done it in a while. My last previous episodes were just a more looser feel like this where I'm just talking. So I want you guys to let me know what do you like more, if you like both, if you want me to have both, or if you just like me being more uh, loose and more fluid and talking, no music. Let me... <laughs> Let me know, guys. Um, you could do so at Strange Talk Podcast on Instagram or email me and let me know at Strange Talk 
podcast at outlook.com. So that's, I think I said it wrong the first time. That's Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. You can find me there. Or you can send me an email at Strange Talk Podcast at outlook.com to let me know what you like more. Do you like the looser feel or do you like the story narrative with music and everything where I try to sound like sword and scale and lore? <laughs> Just to name a few podcasts that are kind of like that in that same realm. Um, I like both. Um, it, it's more time consuming when I do the editing heavy of like adding the music and everything and trying to find what flows because I'm very picky and I'm, I'm nitpicky as well. So just let me know what you guys want. And then the next story is going to be a looser fill one where I'm just simply talking really no music at all and just telling you the story of Evelyn Dick, who is Canada's most infamous murderer. Okay, so that story is coming up after this segment. Stay tuned. So here's the case of the Torso murder. This took place in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada in March of 1946. Evelyn Dick was born to Donald and Alexandria McLean on October 13, 1920. A year after her birth in Beamsville near Niagara Falls, the family moved to 214 Roslyn Avenue in Hamilton. The elder McLean worked for the Hamilton Street Railway as a streetcar conductor. He later attained an office position that gave him access to company reviews, revenues. <laughs> Evelyn's childhood was not particularly happy. Her father indulged too much in alcohol and her mother demonstrated a wicked temper. The parents didn't get along often and often spent time apart. Evelyn didn't associate much with the neighborhood children. Her parents considered her too fragile to be out playing on the streets. Rumors abounded that Donald was dipping into the coffers of the HSR. They lived very well, always had huge sums in the bank, and would send Evelyn shopping with handfuls of nickels, the fee collected for a fare in those days. With parental encouragement, Evelyn tried hard to become recognized in the finer circles in town. Her parents pulled her out of public school and sent her to the prestigious Laredo Academy, attended by the daughters of Hamilton's elite. She would host lavish parties at the Royal Connaught Hotel, Hamilton's finest, and spend money freely on acquaintances. Her social acceptance was never reciprocated in the, in the way that she wanted. The attractive Evelyn became the focus of rumors while still in her mid-teens. She had more expensive jewelry and furs than was considered proper. She spent time in the company of much older men and at places out of town and at racetracks. In 1942, Evelyn gave birth to a daughter, Heather. This further fueled rumors. Evelyn announced that it was okay that she was married to a man stationed overseas by the last name of White. Later examination of military records failed to prove the existence of such a person. In June of 1945, Evelyn, Heather, and Alexandra McLean, who had recently separated from Donald, moved into an apartment together in downtown Hamilton. After a month or so together, Evelyn astounded her mother by announcing that in two weeks she was going to marry John Dick. 
Alexandria McLean had never heard of him. On October 4th, 1945, Evelyn and John were married at the Church of the Ascension. It was Saturday, March 16th, in 1946, when a group of five children found what they thought looked like the body of a headless pig lying partway down the street of Hamilton's encampment of what locals called the mountain. Their find proved to be more gruesome. It was, in fact, the torso of an adult male. The head, arms, and legs were missing and nowhere to be found. A deep wound in the abdomen told investigators that someone had tried to cut the torso itself in two. An identification of the remains by doctors and a positive ID by his brother-in-law led police to the conclusion that they had found the remains of John Dick, a conductor for the Hamilton Street Railway. Dick's cousin, Alexander Kamir, had reported to police that John had been missing since March 6. He told them that he became worried when he heard reports of the torso and began to suspect that something awful may have happened to the man who had been living with him since his short-lived marriage had apparently failed. Kamir had wondered whether Dick had returned to the house on Carrick Avenue where he, his wife, and stepdaughter had resided together for only a brief period of time. Strange as it seemed, John and Evelyn had been married for almost a month before they began to reside together. She remained in an apartment with her mother and Heather, telling John that there wasn't enough room for all of them. Alexandria wondered about Evelyn and John, all the while remembering the name, Bill Bohuzak, the man that she believed her daughter to be very much involved with when Evelyn's perplexing marriage announcement was made. It was Evelyn herself who bought the Carrick Avenue home. John Dick's name was not on the mortgage and it is believed that he put none of the initial deposit money down. A few stormy months resulted in John's departure. Evelyn was taken to police headquarters for questioning by Detective Sergeant Clarence Preston soon after the body was identified. What followed was astounding to investigators. Evelyn Dick responded to the news that the torso belonged to her husband by remarking, Don't look at me. I don't know anything about it. Then proceeded to tell a story about a natly dressed Italian hitman who arrived at her door looking for John. He said that he was going to fix him for messing around with his wife. He then left without telling Miss Dick who he was. Days later, police had learned that Evelyn borrowed a large Packard car from a man named Bill Landig. Landig received the car back with blood covering the front seat, the seat covers missing, and bloody clothing in the back. Evelyn left a note explaining that Heather had cut herself and made the mess. <laughs> Investigation proved the blood to be the same type as John Dick's. At this point, Evelyn told police that a mysterious man had called her, told her that John made a woman pregnant and that he was getting what was coming to him. 
The man then asked her to meet her so that he could borrow a car. Evelyn explained that she met the man and he had a large sack with him. He told her it contained part of John. Evelyn's story went on to say that she drove this man and his cargo to the dumping site. Mystic told police on the route that she claimed they followed. When asked if it was all at all alarming to her that her husband's body was in the vehicle, she said that she, was, she wasn't happy about his demise, but that it was a pretty mean trick to break up a home, referring evidently to the woman who Dick had allegedly impregnated. She empathetically denied conspiring to kill her husband. Evelyn's responses and demeanor were inappropriate. Psychiatrists found her to be on the borderline between having dull, normal, and moron-like intelligence. In addition, it was reported that she had the mental capacity of a 13-year-old girl. Although this diagnosis was surprising to many who knew her to be an extremely intelligent and manipulative woman. Later, Evelyn changed her story again and signed a second statement regarding the involvement of the Italian killers. Hired by Bill Bohozek, she took police on another tour, explaining in some detail how the crime was committed, indulging the location where John Dick was shot in the head on a muddy road near Glanford, south of Hamilton. During all of this, investigators at the Dick's Carrick Avenue residence made a gruesome discovery. A beige suitcase in an attic trunk. The suitcase was filled with concrete, and in the concrete were the remains of a baby boy born to Evelyn on September 5th, 1944. Alexandria McLean told police that she had seen her husband at this trunk the day before and told her to get the hell out of the room. Faced with this turn of events and having been told that Bohozuk had been bought, brought in for questioning, Evelyn Dick told yet another story. She said that Bill Bohozuk had murdered the child and John Dick as well. Incriminating evidence such as bullet holes in a pipe, a revolver and cartridges, saws and bloodstained shoes that were almost certainly John Dick's were found in Donald McLean's basement. Evelyn Dick Bill Bohozek and Donald McLean were charged with the murder of John Dick. Evelyn Dick's trial caused a media frenzy, and crowds turned up at the Hamilton courthouse to catch a glimpse of the beautiful suspect. In her first trial, Evelyn Dick, represented, represented by lawyer John Sullivan, was found guilty of John Dick's murder. She was sentenced to death by hanging. Although she may not have killed John with her own hands, Evelyn Dick was guilty by participating in the planning and carrying out of the crime, which was enough to find her guilty of murder under the law. When the case was heard on appeal, the verdict was overturned because lawyer J.J. Robinette skillfully argued that Evelyn's statements to police were improperly admitted into evidence and that the trial judge had not properly instructed the jury. Bill Bohozek and Donald McLean were held for an unheard of length of time before their 
joint trial was to take place. Bolhozuk walked because Evelyn Dick, the only witness prosecutors had, refused to testify. Donald McLean was found to be guilty as an accessory after the fact and sentenced to five years in prison. Evelyn, however, was not so lucky. She was found guilty of manslaughter in the death of her infant son and sentenced to life in Kingston Penitentiary where she became a model inmate. In 1958, Evelyn Dick was paroled and on November 10th, 1958, she was released from prison. In total, she served almost 13 years behind bars between jail time in Kingston and Hamilton. What happened to her after that is uncertain as she assumed a new name and started a new life in an unknown city. In 1985, Evelyn was granted a pardon under the Royal Prerogative of Mercy, which meant that she no longer had to report to the police or the parole board, and her file was sealed forever. No one was ever convicted for the murder of John Dick. So thank you for joining me on today's episode of Strange Talk, episode 15, Charles Chuck Stewart and the Torso Murder. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Uh, feel free to uh, either message me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast or send me an email at Strange Talk Podcast at Outlook.com to let me know what do you like more do you like just me purely talking or do you like the theatrics of the music and everything if you want both just tell me both uh it, it doesn't really matter to me in any way i just want to stay entertaining to the listeners that's all i really care about because without you guys strange talk podcasts would not be a thing but not only that if you enjoyed today's episode why not if you haven't already why not subscribe to it on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, and if it allows you to rate it, why not give it a rate? Let me know uh, what you think, write a review, um, say hey you suck, or hey you're fucking amazing, I love it, I love listening to your voice, it tingles my body, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, um, this coming week uh, is going to be another uh, Beyond the Strange This Week in Crime, so uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying that little segment and whatnot where I bring you interesting stories from the news <laughs> that centers around crime and not particularly crime. I think I'm just going to include whatever I find interesting. Um, and then after that is going to be one more episode of the season. Um, and I'm going to be taking a break and probably come back sometime between mid-January um, because it's... You know, it's time to start a new season, and you know, who knows? I'm gonna try to see if maybe um, I can get a new intro, um, a new theme song for Strange Talk Podcast, which was created by the band um, Morning Person. They are a very uh, soundtrack, ambient, ambient type of uh, genre. I do enjoy them, they are pretty good. So, if you wanna look them up on Instagram, they are at Morning Person Music on instagram so but yeah aside from that um i 
may or may not try something new and different with the show um, this next coming season. Uh, the last episode, I don't really have particularly what I'm going to do because I have a couple of uh, cases that I do want to discuss or I may save them for the next season. Um, but <laughs> I don't know because what I want to do, hopefully you guys will enjoy it because unfortunately, not unfortunately, I should be grateful for the fact that it is. But it may, may, may possibly be 911 calls again because those were my most popular episodes. Um, so I might do another one because I'm a sellout, I guess. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But I may do another one like that. And, you know, so aside from that, you guys have been reaching out to me. I've had a few people. One lady in particular <laughs> told me, uh, she gave me some advice and she said, uh, to not speak so fast and I already knew that was a problem for me it's not a big deal I don't care I just I don't know what it is I've always had a habit where I speak really fast um, especially when I'm explaining stuff explaining stuff um, and I don't know it's always been like a habit of mine where I speak really fast and I talk really fast because I'm a fast moving fast thinking kind of guy but um, <laughs> um, I don't really care if you guys care, I'm sorry, but it's a habit that I am going to try to break, and I will try to talk a little slower. But aside from that, so there's going to be one more episode of the season, of the first season. And so a big thank you to you guys for sticking with me and just listening to all the episodes and the silliness that is Strange Talk Podcast. Uh, before I end this, I want to just speak about um, a podcast in particular. They are X and Y podcast. They are a pretty fresh podcast, I would say. Not super fresh, but they are still kind of out there. You can find them on iTunes and you can find their social media, which is X and Y podcast. That is on Instagram. You can go ahead and find them on there. But they're they basically just they're kind of like a rambling podcast. They talk about whatever they want to talk about. Uh, the recent episode that they had out was an episode about um, traveling, I believe, is what they had. If I can remember, it was them traveling around and just giving tips on it. Um, they're, they're high school friends, I believe, and they were, they just decided to do a podcast together, and now they're both in college, and they're just basically, it's run by a girl. Uh, and a, a boy, a man, I guess his name. You can find his Instagram at Paul Flanagan, and hers is at Katie. I'm sorry if I pronounce your last name wrong. Gioli, Gioli, G I O E L I, Gioli. I think it's Gioli. I don't know, but reach out to me and let me know how bad I fucked up your uh, last name. Uh, but so yeah, you can find them on Anchor.fm XY Podcast, or you can find them on Instagram if you want to give them a follow. Um, their podcast is actually pretty interesting. They talk about their lives, and you wouldn't think that your life would be interesting, but I'm sure if you told people the stories and things that you've dealt with, and just you, it's actually pretty entertaining. People love to hear other people's stories, so go ahead and check that podcast out. That is X and Y Podcast. You can find them on Instagram at XY Podcast. Uh, so again, thank you for sticking with me. It's almost the end of the first season of Strange Talk Podcast. And without you, 
the listeners uh there would not be strange talk podcast i didn't really think it would go this far as it did i honestly thought it would just be like maybe five episodes and i would have given it up but um thank you for your support uh maybe next season i will be introducing a patreon because then i feel maybe i deserve it so hopefully i'll see you guys then and as always stay strange